Oh, hi, I'm Alan Gannett. And I'm Shane Snow. And you're listening to Creative Hotline, the call and advice show dedicated to helping creatives reach their full potential. Today, we're answering questions about artificial intelligence versus humanity when it comes to creativity. So exactly what creative industries are automation and robots going to upend? And where are our creative jobs safe? Is a physical body required to be truly conscious, emotive, and creative? And we take a question from someone who was disqualified from an art competition because he programmed a computer to make his art for him. These are the creative questions coming at us in our future, you guys. All that and more in this episode of Creative Hotline. Creative Hotline, leave your question at the... Hi, Alan and Shane. This is Jocelyn. Um, and I have been really curious or even anxious, honestly, about technology and jobs. But more specifically, it seems like technology will be able to replace a lot of jobs in the future. But there will always be a need for creativity, like a robot can't exactly write an amazing fiction novel. Um, so my question is, what areas of creativity are in danger of technological dominance? Or, you know, do you think creative jobs and fields are actually safer than others? Thank you. So I love both parts of this question. The The second half is definitely, I think, the easier half. So I will answer that half first, which is I think creativity is definitely the most future-proof set of skills. Hmm. You know, if you think about AI, machine learning, all of these things, there is a lot of automation coming to white collar jobs. You see this a lot right now in sort of the legal industries and the finance industries where things we never thought could be automated are starting to be literally done by machines and computers. But what that allows us to do is as humans, we have more time for creative thought, strategy. You know, it's things that are truly, I think, human oriented tasks. There's actually LinkedIn has had for the last two years in their survey of employers that creativity is the most sought after soft skill that employers are looking for, which by the way, I think is a little, a little like annoying because I don't think creativity is a soft skill. I think it's a hard skill, but that's, you know, maybe a fight for another day. I, uh, I actually saw some research recently about how CEOs, uh, boards of public companies, what they say they want in CEOs of the future is creativity, but then what they actually hire is the opposite of creativity because creativity is risky. Uh, so go figure. Maybe we'll have a bunch of robot CEOs with creative advisors in the future. Now, I have have I told you, Alan, my jet ski theory of the future? No, tell me your jet ski theory of the future. So my theory is is that if somehow we don't blow ourselves up and we invent basically free electricity, so we can collect electricity from the sun and transmit it for free. Eventually, we will automate all of the things that suck, all the, the jobs that we don't like to do, all the manual labor. And the only things left for us to do as humans are going to be to make art and ride jet skis. That's, <laughs> that's like basically entertainment and creativity. And It's I a metaphor. Like, yes, exactly. It's yeah, I'd, I'd like to think that that's true. I mean, that'd be a great utopia. But that, uh, that creativity, you know, making art is... Uh, is kind of the thing that robots can't do. However, I do worry when I see some of the AI applications that are coming out where, you know, as a writer, I, I started freaking out when I saw that they now have uh, robots writing, you know, baseball stories where, you know, they get mm. the data of, you know, all the things that happened in the baseball game 
And the computer also knows all the things that have ever happened in any baseball game. And they use a template that was created by a great sports writer. And then it makes an article that you think is just an amazing article where this hasn't happened since Hank Aaron did this thing in 1922. And it sounds good. It's starting from the creative template, which gives me hope. But uh, I also think that example, in that example, when you read those, at least I've always read them and felt like they're a little robotic sounding because it's very stat based. Like the same thing is happening in financial news. There's these articles that are like, you know, this stock moved above the average and blah, 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 blah. And like, you know, a lot of what makes writing exciting and exciting and fun and challenging is all the stuff that happens off the template, right? You have to learn the rules to yeah. break the rules. And I, I'm hopeful that the breaking of the rules, that's going to be very hard for machines to automate anytime soon. Well, could we not create rules for how the robots break the rules? You know, well, really, create- really breaking the rules. Sure. This but is, uh, gotten I, real circular. I think that there's a threshold. So look at it like a James Patterson novel. There's a formula there for a really entertaining novel. And yes, there's surprises. Yes, there's novelty. You know, there's twists. But there is a formula that, uh, you know, that he kind of uses. And so could a James Patterson type creative genius create the perfect Mad Lib formula for how to make a James Patterson novel. So I actually have a lot of thoughts on this because I read a lot of James Patterson, which is a, <laughs> like a fun fact. He actually changed it. Well, first of all, the, here's the James Patterson industri- industrial complex, which I thought was really interesting. He works with different ghostwriters and mm-hmm. he basically outlines the, the, the plot and then ghostwriters write the actual, the actual pieces of it. And what's interesting is if you read a lot of his books, you can tell every time he switches a ghostwriter. And so, <laughs> you know, that to me is an argument for why I don't think that'll actually be able to be automated. Because even, even in that where you have one of the masters of storytelling and narrative, you know, crafting an outline and a formula, you can tell pretty distinctly when there's a new ghostwriter in town. But, you know, my – so here's my hopeful take. Here's my hopeful take. I'm an investor in a tool called Spline, which makes it very easy to create 3D designs. And it's like people like love it, whatever. And not whatever, it's cool. But anyway, and what's interesting is a lot of what's doing is automating a lot of the intense sort of granular work that goes into 3D illustration. And it makes it much, much easier. And so you could say on one side, that's automating creative jobs. And the other side, it allows the creatives to focus on the more interesting problems, right? Things like the macro layout, the strategy, the sort of conceptualization work and make the execution easier. So I think a lot about the nuance between sort of craft and creativity, creativity being the idea generation, craft Mm. being the execution. And I do think that, you know, to answer Jocelyn's question, I do think that there will be more automation in the execution of creativity, but I'm still very bullish on the conceptualization being a very human-centric activity. So the last thing I'll say on this, the thing that gives me hope is when I think about the creative process, there is this uh, kind of expansion of, you know, you're collecting inputs, you're, you're, you know, say you're reading broadly or all the stuff that you read about in the creative curve, right? You're taking in uh, the building blocks that you'll be creative with. And then you make connections and you build things, but then part of what you do is you filter out the stuff that is awful. And I think that the human brain is really good at the parallel processing and pattern recognition that it takes to filter out things that are novel, that are different, that we would call creative, that actually suck. 
and the things that are going to be delightful. And I, I so far have not seen any robotic AI type applications that come close to that uh, step of what <laughs> the human brain can do. I love that. We'll that's, a, that's a great punctuation mark. So speaking of great creative human beings, it is now time for my favorite segment of Creative Hotline, which is called Creative Hotline Bling. Creative Hotline Bling is the segment where I ask Alan questions about Drake, because I love Drake, and I don't think Alan knows too much about Drake. So I quiz him uh, about uh, who I, someone who I think is one of the more creative artists of our generation. But uh, Alan, is, I'm literally being picked on. I'm being I, picked on right now. It's you know, fine. Everyone usually, can hear it. Usually we do, a, you know, we do these trivia questions where I have to prove that I have good grammar and I don't. This time... We're talking about Drake. So are you ready, Alan, for creative hotline bling? Ready as I'll ever be. Okay. In 2011, rising megastar rapper Drake released a hit song where at one point he laments about how it got so empty. And then he says something that I think you'll find relatable as a creative person who feels pressure to keep cranking stuff out. He says, if they don't get it, they'll be over you. That new shit that you got is overdue. You better do what you're supposed to do. You ever felt like that, Alan? All the time. Yeah, they just, yeah, they're going to get over you if you don't keep cranking it out. Anyway, at the end of this, Drake decides that if he's going to pull this off, he says, I guess it's just me, myself, and blank. So this is the question. Who is it that's going to help Drake keep going, keep cranking out creative material? Me, myself, and who? So I will admit to not having heard this song before. <laughs> so fair question. I've definitely felt the pressure of needing to sort of push yourself forward and the craft forward. So I empathize with Drake. I get, I get, I get what he's throwing down. Me, myself... You know, those two words are mean the same thing. So, you know, I think Drake's a smart guy. You know, I, I remember back when he was on Degrassi. I forgot if he was a good student in Degrassi, but we'll say he was. And I think that he believes in parallelism, right? He gets how to he gets how to write a lyric. So if I had to guess, it'd be me, myself, and something that is also representative of himself. And I don't think me, myself, and himself doesn't have quite the right vibe to it. And so my guess is that it's me, myself, and I is the lyric. You think that the, that the cliche, me, myself, and I, is actually what he's going to say? Yes. It all c comes down to. Well, I don't, I don't have control of the sound effects. How do I do the... the I, I can do it. I can do okay. it. I got you. All right. give, me, give me a you, you lose sound effect. Oh no! But also, you're kind of right. So maybe you get a little bit of a buzz. Drake says, "I guess it's just me, myself, and all my millions." Oh, which okay. is kind of you know like saying it's all up to me, which is sort of what you said. You're literally just being nice to me. That's I got this terribly wrong. <laughs> but this well, okay. uh, this pressure to uh, to feel like. You are only as good as the last thing you put out. Even Drake feels it. And Drake is a gajillionaire. Yeah, so and he has okay. millions to, to, to wipe his tears away with. Yeah. Okay, well, with, well, with that, with that, like, true accomplishment, I feel really good about this. I'm going to, 
you know, tell all my friends about how I did great on this. We're going to go to our next question in our voicemail. Hi, Alan and Shane. This is Zevin from Buffalo Thunder. My question is, it seems to me that animals, including humans, have emotions and desire as a result of having a physical body. Do you think it's necessary to have a physical body to experience emotions and desire, including the desire to create something? In the case of machines and artificial intelligence, would hardware count as a body? If so, why? Ooh. Oh. <laughs> Do you want to take I mean, this first? This to me feels a little chicken and eggy, right? Because, you know, our, our, our emotions are sort of identified by our brain and effectuated by our nervous system. And so our emotions, you know, is the key element of emotions the identification or the actual experiencing of them? What do you think? I think we need to sit down around a campfire with Zevin and really have this out, <laughs> maybe under the influence of ayahuasca. No, I, I think this question is fascinating. So the desire part, right? What does a computer desire? It, it doesn't really have a desire. It has directives, right? It has uh, things that you tell it to do. And uh, so you could say that it desires to accomplish its task, but only because you've told it to, and it will stop doing it as soon as it runs out of juice. Our human bodies are programmed to desire things, and emotions are a big part of that. Emotions signal whether something's important so that we then desire to take care of it or you know do something about it. Um, and often but emotions are reactive, right, to what's going on around us, right? Like think about, you know, sexual emotions, for example, are often reactive to sort of the intakes. Right. So, you know, emotions from a, a brain standpoint are about signaling that something is important uh, so that we then do it or don't do it or, or whatever it is. And, uh, and you know, obviously they can we can have reactions that are disproportionate to the emotion that we feel. That's a lot of the problems we have in the world are because, you know, you get angry, so therefore something's important, but then you do something dumb uh, because it's not that important. Um, but uh, but this idea of desire, you know, if you, it, I, I do think it might come down to whether you think that we are programmed to desire. Uh, our biology is kind of like a computer hardware, or if there's something, you know, uh, I guess like inherent and free willy about our desires. But I would say that a for sure. A computer is not going to desire to create something unless you tell it to. And yet all humans come pre-built with this desire to create, whether we're talking about procreation, creating, you know, families, passing on our genes, or talking about, uh, you know, the creative things that we love to do. Some people don't like being creative, but we all create and we are programmed to desire to do so. And and I think the part of the question that really sticks with me is this idea of will, you know, without a body will machines experience emotions? And he's sort of, you know, saying that emotions are sort of a foundation to then being able to create or have the desire to create, which I think is a fair point. Hmm. And you maybe one thing I'd say is, A, I wonder if we maybe overestimate the magic of our emotions. Our emotions are pretty rudimentary on some level, right? Fight or flight, sexual desire, not sexual desire. Like these are pretty like danger, not danger. Mm -hmm. You know, we experience them sort of contextualize against the world, which is very nuanced. But actually, our emotions oftentimes are not that nuanced, I would argue, <laughs> maybe to a fault, you know, to your point around anger. And, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe there's a better variation of emotions that machines could unlock. Maybe they could have more nuanced takes. I don't know. Interesting. So larger discussion, but emotional intelligence is basically about zeroing in on 
the nuances of the emotions that you're feeling. So you feel surprised or confused or angry or sad or happy or whatever, spending time thinking about that and parsing it and saying, am I angry or am I frustrated? And is that different than aggravated or hateful? You know, and what's making me frustrated, you know, emotion as a trigger to do thinking, that's what emotional intelligence is. So I think computers, if they could feel emotions, could certainly do that analysis. You know, that's something we could learn from computers. But uh, but this idea of the hardware being necessary does make me think of that Johnny Depp movie, Transcendence. I don't know if you saw this one. It. I don't know that it's worth it. Uh, but Johnny <laughs> Depp is a computer genius and he's building a computer that can house his brain, but then he gets terminally ill and he has to upload his brain early. And, uh, and then he lives in the computer and he says, it's so cold. And, oh, no. uh, you know, and his, his wife is like, but Johnny, you know, how is it in there? And he's like, let me out, connect me to the internet. And then <laughs> once he gets connected to the internet, he takes over the planet and he's a monster and he has no morals no. or ethics or emotions. Movie. So you take away Johnny Depp's body and he has no desire to, uh, uh, yeah, no, every, all of the things about his humanity go away and he just becomes this monster. Uh, so uh, I'm going to go ahead and say that, uh, that that's, that's the case. The body's necessary. My, my theory that I will qualify by saying is very underinformed is that artificial intelligence is probably going to eventually have some form of consciousness that will be different than our form of consciousness. And I think we might as humans sort of then say, well, it's not conscious, but it's definitely going to be something. And I think that something will inherently be unique and it will be a distinct form of life in the same way, perhaps, you know, certain animals, how they process things are somewhat distinct from how we process things. And so I would say that my bet would be that machines will experience emotions, but it'll be like emotions in scare quotes, not scare quotes, but in air quotes, air quotes, not scare quotes. <laughs> and they'll be different than how we experience emotions. And as a result, how they will create or what they create will also be different than what we want to create. I, I think that that is a very, uh, very good prediction. We'll take it. So we are then ready for our next game, which is a game called Who Said What? And this is a game which, you know, probably is somewhat straightforward to figure out what it probably is. It is a quote game. And so we are going to read Shane a quote about creativity, and he is going to have to guess who said it. And by the way, there is actually no prize to this. It is just a subtle sense of intellectual superiority over me. Oh, okay, great. Okay, I'm, yeah. in. I'm in. I'm bored. Are you, are, you, are you ready? Yes. Okay. Here's the quote. Dreams are lovely, but they are just dreams. Fleeting, ephemeral, pretty, but dreams do not come true just because you dream them. It's hard work that makes things happen. It's hard work that creates change. So who said that? Okay. Option A, the iconic man who bit the apple, Steve Jobs. B, Miss Shondaland herself, TV creator extraordinaire, Shonda Rhimes. C, the granddaddy of creatives, Mr. Cubism, Pablo Picasso, or D, our third favorite Canadian, Drake. <laughs> How's your third favorite Canadian? Who, mm, who's... We don't want to get into it. All right. Oh, well, I mean, Taylor is, okay. Yeah, we'll talk about this She's later. not Canadian. Don't, don't. Taylor's not Canadian? No, she's from Nashville. This is her whole oh, you're right. story. What am I even talking about? Okay. You're thinking of like Bieber or Mendez. 
Yeah. All right. We'll let's share. You know. Anyway, we'll I keep do, going. Keep I demand going. that this be stricken from the record. Okay. <laughs> so uh, this is a quote about dreams, uh, but dreams not being enough. You need hard work. That sounds very Steve Jobs. It sounds pretentious as shit, uh, which, you know, I love Pablo Picasso. And I think there was a level of pretension there that uh, that is both delightful and uh, snarky, like this quote. I don't know enough about Shonda Rhimes. I, I know that my wife really likes her, but is currently annoyed at her because she thinks that she blew it with Bridgerton. What? How Bridgerton's perfect. Well, uh, I'm this is a long Sylvia. I'm this is a longer Sylvia. discussion. No, so you know, Sylvia's a filmmaker and uh and she is Guatemalan and she's working on stuff about getting actors of color into, you know, TV and film projects that they wouldn't normally be invited to. Bridgerton's a great example of that. But for all the hullabaloo, they uh, they explained why there's black people in England through like a very clunky, not super empowering way. So she's annoyed about that. All right. I'm going to uh, call Sylvia. We're going to talk about this. Yeah. Yeah. Please do. But uh, but other than that, I just know that Shonda Rhimes is really creative and seems like a more humble person than Steve Jobs and uh, and Pablo. And I don't think it was Drake. I think I would know about this. I could you are a resident wrong. Drake expert. Yeah, I could be wrong, though. I'm going to go with Pablo Picasso. Final answer. Final answer? Yeah. So I am sorry, but this was actually Mrs. Shonda Rhimes. Oh! Um, this is a quote from her. I think it's, I actually, you called it pretentious. I'll, I won't hold it against you. Oh, no. I think, I think it's a great quote um, because I do think there's this idea that sometimes when it comes to creativity, it's just about you have to just do stuff. And you have to do the work and you can't spend all of your times you know, just in your head dreaming about things. So Shonda Rhimes, Shane Snow, who said what? You you failed. You honestly, it was I, not. You know, on the other hand, it is imp- more empowering to hear that quote from Shonda Rhimes than from Pablo C- Picasso. So on the other hand, I'm I'm happy about this devastating cool. loss. We'll take it. And speaking of taking it, we are going to go to the next question. <laughs> Just keep going. <laughs> Hi, Alan and Shane. Uh, this is Kevin from Syracuse. Um, so uh, a couple months ago, I was disqualified from a poetry contest after um, uh, coding and using a poem generator. I guess my question is, will you think that this would change in the future? And would you have considered my submission poetry? I think we see the same thing in art, and I honestly just don't think it's fair that things that are created that I've coded is not considered art. So let me know. Love the podcast so far. Oh, shit. The future is now. Yeah. All right, Kevin. Uh, I First of all, sorry you got disqualified. I kind of – I mean, I don't know the rules of this poetry contest, but I am a little bit bothered by this because he was the creator. Even if the robot wrote the poem, he's the one who created the robot that made the poem. And so, you know, maybe if there were specific rules that he broke, uh, but if there wasn't a rule against that, I think that, you know, they it's they're bad for not having the rule that this has to be. You can't create a thing that creates it. Um, but in when I think about the future of this sort of thing, I think an art competition where you design the artificial intelligence that creates the art. And I think that's a really fascinating competition. I think it's a different type of competition than, you know, us both illustrating and whoever illustrates with their own bare hands, the best thing wins. But uh, so I, 
I would say this to me sounds like a matter of what were the rules, expectations, and was Kevin being clever or did he actually break a rule? But absolutely, he is a creator in this scenario. So I have a personal experience here that I'm going to share. This is, right. this is something we haven't shared before. But I was in Boy Scouts as a kid, and they have this thing called the Pinewood Derby, which is a you race, you make a Pinewood car, and you race it down a track, and whoever gets first wins. Sort of intuitive, right? Well, not so intuitive for me. So my, my dad and I were like, okay, we're going to make a car. And my dad pointed out that where does it say it has to be made of wood? And so we made a car out of metal and we brought it to the Pinewood Derby and we were disqualified <laughs> because they were like, it's the Pinewood Derby, uh... which to be honest was a fair point. <laughs> and so, yeah. okay. So Kevin, I get you. That being said, in this case, well, that was a fair point. I actually don't think this was a fair point, no matter sort of what the, the normative sort of rules were, because ultimately when we think about art, when we think about creativity, I mean, Art, to me at least, is really all of the context around it. And so think about Andy Warhol. You know, he literally would call a screen printer and say, I want, you know, this image in these colors. And then it would be brought to him. Like he was his hand wasn't touching a lot of that stuff. In other instances, he was using assistants. You know, Jeffrey Coons used assistants. So art is not about just the craft. In fact, many times it's almost how we manipulate or all of the context about the craft. So I actually think what you did is very artistic and very cool. And I've actually recently become obsessed with these um, things called CryptoPunks, which Shane, I don't know if you've read about this, but they're really wild. So CryptoPunks are literally a digital avatar that were created in 2017. There was 10,000 of them created and an AI generated them. And they all have different attributes as a result. And they created them. They're actually the first, what's called a non-fungible token. So basically on the blockchain, there's a one of one. So there's, you know, CryptoPunk, it looks like this, and there's one of them, and you can buy or sell that CryptoPunk. The most expensive ones now go for about $750,000, like actual money. Wow. And people have all this sort of brouhaha about like, oh, like what is, this is crazy. It's a bubble. How is this art? But inherently, I mean, it's art in the same way Warhol was art. It's about the context. It's about the moment. It's about what it represents. It's about the significance, the scarcity. And so I mm -hmm. think you were disqualified incorrectly for whatever penance that or forever, whatever calmness that might give you. Wow. Another fun fact about my wife, Sylvia, is she is a crypto trader on the side. So she own a crypto punk? Well, we shouldn't say I don't publicly. Know. We shouldn't say publicly. I'm going to ask if she has any shares in a crypto punk. This is the first time I've heard of that. I, I love your uh, your take here on this. I, I actually think the distinction between craft and creativity is a really useful one for me that I've gotten out of this conversation. I'm, I'm curious what your big takeaways from this episode are. I, I think that that's, that's the big one for me. Yeah, I, I think fundamentally, when we look into the future, there is going to be a lot of changes. And I am very optimistic and very hopeful, you know, as you're saying, that this distinction between craft and creativity is going to continue. And as humans, we're going to have more and more tools and technology that enable us to use creativity, even if we don't know the craft, to create amazing things, whether they be, you know, poems or crypto punks or whatever. And that to me is actually a very exciting image of the future and something that, you know, I can definitely get behind.
I like to think about this in terms of layers of abstraction. Mm. So in computers, you know, everything's ones and zeros and they're made by little transistors, but programmers don't type out ones and zeros. They type out code. On top of the ones and zeros is a layer of code that tells the ones and zeros what to do. And on top of that is another layer of code. And on top of that is another layer of code to the point that now kids can, with iPads, program apps. And it's all kind of getting translated down to that computer level. When I think about this idea of creativity and craft, I think that we are becoming abstracted away from a lot of the stuff that we don't necessarily want to do. If you love the craft of, you know, brewing and pouring your own coffee, you know, growing the beans yourself and, and doing that, that can be really rewarding and, uh, and you should do it. But if what you want is a coffee, you can use your app to order one now. And so I think with creativity, wherever along the layers of abstraction you want to operate, you, you still can. You still can carve, you know, it's not your a new phenomenon, right? Like exactly. Warhol was doing this, you know, you, you know, decades ago. Yeah. You can still car- carve your Pinewood Derby car by hand <laughs> if you want to. Uh, but in the future, I think there will be new opportunities for us to be more creative on those top layers as more automation is doing stuff for us on the lower layers. Do you have a question? You, yeah, you listening for us on anything creativity related that you'd like to hear on the show. Uh, if you'd like to ask us a question, simply visit creativehotlineshow.com from your phone or computer to leave us a voicemail. We are here to answer your questions. So put us, and by us, I mean Shane, to work. <laughs> so yeah, we'll be here every week. And in our next episode, we're gonna explore a topic that strikes fear in every creative person's heart, and that is plagiarism. So where is the line? Yeah, right. (laughs) Where is the line between inspiration and copying? And they say that great artists steal, but is this true? So we'll be answering your questions on this topic and trying to find the nuance. And if you like this first episode, we could use your help. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Por favor. Also, I have some more asks. Be sure to subscribe to automatically get each episode for free on your favorite podcast app. And I have the feeling you're going to ask for one more thing, Alan. Oh, yes. Please text your friends about the show. Heck, text your frenemies. Please just tell someone. And in the meantime, ask us your questions, please, for future episodes at creativehotlineshow.com. Bye, friends. Bye, Alan. Bye.